I too greet you all this morning in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We have been in a series of messages from the book of Ephesians, and I encourage you to open your copy of the Scriptures to Ephesians chapter number 2, and we will continue some thoughts and build upon some thoughts from the last Lord's Day uh, from Ephesians 2. I noted, I uh, observed with Pastor John in between Bible study and the morning worship that our uh, topics, our comments, uh, even passages read uh, between Bible study and what I've been studying on and intend to try to bring this morning are very, very close. So that's, I thought there's, well, there's two advantages to that. One, those that were not able to be with us in uh, the Bible study can perhaps get a, a smattering of what we got then. Not all of it, but a smattering. And then secondly, those of us that were, uh, we can have uh, the, the privilege of redundancy. That we can uh, have it sort of stirred up in our minds and maybe <coughs> pressed down. Uh, so that uh, maybe it will be fixed and fastened in our minds. I want to read this morning from Ephesians chapter 2. And I'll begin with verse 18 and read down through the end of the chapter today. We considered verses, uh, beginning with verse 11, last Lord's Day, and uh, I will make some comment about that, but for our reading, I think I'll go to verse 18. May we hear the word of God. For through him, that would be Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. May God be pleased to bless his word and may his people say. Let's bow again for prayer. Holy Father, we thank you again for your word, for that which has already been read, and we thank you, Lord, for this portion of your word that we are considering today. I would ask again the blessed presence, guidance, and power of your Holy Spirit that the gospel may go out, it may run forth, and it would accomplish your intended purpose in the lives of all that are present. And Lord, help me to remember to preach as never sure to preach again as a dying man to dying men. So Lord, help us now to take your word uh, faithfully and solemnly and may we look to it and the author of it. We pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. 
Well, in Ephesians chapter 1, we learned that God does indeed have a wonderful plan for the cosmos and for his chosen ones. It is a purpose and plan that all of history is being moved towards and has been since the beginning. This plan's certainty and authority is the salvific work of the Holy Trinity. And we noted how that it, even in Ephesians chapter 1 beginning, well, actually beginning before verse 3, but in verse 3 and forward how the Apostle develops for our understanding the message of salvation uh, as a work of the Father who predestines in love he predestines and chooses a work of the Son who redeems us, who purchases us by his blood and a work of the Holy Spirit who seals those for whom Christ has died for those that the Father has chosen. We noted that this plan's um, accomplishment now um, will be realized in the fullness of time. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10, we read this plan is for the fullness of time, and it is to unite all things in Him, things in heaven, and things on earth. I'll not take the time to read it, but if you go to Colossians, a companion epistle with Ephesians, you will read in chapter 1 of Colossians, verses 15 and following, a very similar statement concerning the purpose and plan of God and how that, there, that it results in the oneness and the unity of bringing everything uh, into and under Jesus Christ the Lord. So when all the elect have been redeemed, when they have all been reconciled, this is the fullness of time when this plan will ultimately, completely, finally be realized. It's when the cosmos itself has been rejuvenated and regenerated by the power of God and we have a new heavens and a new earth. It's ultimately, completely, and finally the fullness of time when this plan and purpose of God will be realized. Now we noted that this plan's accomplishment is guaranteed by the irresistible power that is at work by none less, no less than God Himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this power is the same power that's alive and that works in us individually, and I would say collectively, is the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And that is the topic and subject of the prayer that Paul makes and that we could grasp that reality and that fact. Well, we've talked some about the implications of that, but Psalm 138, verse 8, the Lord will fulfill His purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Proverbs nineteen twenty one. Many are the plans in the mind of the man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. And again, a passage from Isaiah that I think we all love and, and we know right readily, but Isaiah 46, verse 8, Remember this, 
and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is none other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, and the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. And we realize he's speaking about a particular king, a Gentile king, and that particular uh, historical reference, and yet there is that truth that God's purpose will stand, and He will accomplish it. Now in Ephesians 2, we noted some obstacles to this plan of God. And the first few verses, the obstacles that we note, uh, an obstacle that we note is the hopeless condition of sinners. That all of humanity is spiritually dead and morally corrupt. And that's the way chapter 2 begins when he says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now this comes right on the heels of this revelation, of this declaration, of this great eternal plan and purpose of God, the uniting of all things in Christ in the fullness of time, and yet there's an obstacle. And the first obstacle mentioned is total depravity. We are lost in sin. And the answer to man's depravity is found in Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. With that, sometimes referred to as holy conjunction, but... But in verse 4, we find the answer to the plight of sinners of all of humanity when he says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, we were predestined in love, remember from Ephesians 1, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. And they will tell us again, by grace through faith, we are saved. Then in chapter 2, verses 11 and forward, and this is where we focused last Lord's Day, we noted that there is another obstacle. That there was an obstacle facing the Ephesians, in particular as we were considering uh, this passage in the book of Ephesians. Not only are they spiritually dead and morally corrupt, they have another issue. And we'll get into this a little bit, but let me just say it this way here. Ethnically, they are separated from God. They are absent from the means of grace. And so they have an additional problem. Not only are they depraved, they're cut off from the very means that God has ordained whereby sinners will be saved. And he tells us this condition that they're in. 
However, we have another holy conjunction in verse 13, another but. We often hear about the earlier one, but we don't hear a lot about this one. But in verse number 13, but now in Jesus Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. By grace you have been saved through faith, and you that were far off have been brought near to God by the blood of Jesus Christ. And again, we see the the presence and the power of the Holy Trinity. In verses 13 through 16, the redemptive work of Christ in reconciling sinners to the Father. Verse 18, the work of the Spirit in transforming sinners into fellow citizens and members of the household of God. And verse 22, the result that in Him you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And to tease you a little bit, I had a wonderful quote here by John R.W.W.R. What is it? Stott. And I left the book at home. You won't get to hear that quote. But we noted also that some people find such amazing grace, such sovereign grace, we noted that some find that offensive. And they reject it. But God's ultimate purpose is a purpose of unity. And whether we stand for it or against it, it will be and is being accomplished. Now, this redemptive unity is a redemptive reality. It is accomplished in Christ and by Christ. And it is the present experience of what we often refer to as the universal church or the church triumphant. Right now, in the presence of our Lord, are all those that have passed away or have died, but they now are in the presence of God. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Now what is their condition? Well, we can go into the intermediate state. That's not what I'm talking about here. What what I'm referencing here is what is... What is their present reality? They are in the presence of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and they are not divided by walls or uh, denomination or color of skin or ethnicity or anything else. They are all gathered as one in the very presence of God through Jesus Christ. Christ the Lord. That's what I mean when I say this unity is now a present reality in the triumphant church or church universal. I use in triumphant in that sense. When all are gathered in, they all are there. Now, it is not a reality, is it? Always in the church visible. But it is to be experienced And it is to be expressed 
by every local body of the Lord Jesus Christ. How will they know that you are my disciples? If you have this love one for another, that's the great testimony. And what does love do? Love, in this sense, tears down those distinctions and barriers. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the spirit, the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. That describes what we should know, what we should experience, what should be our reality. And that's one reason that issues that cause problems in the local body are so awful because it's a strike against the very nature of who we are to be and who we are in Christ in reality and what we are to experience and to express to the world. Now, that's somewhat of where we've been. I want to put a pin there for a minute. And I want to go on a somewhat brief excursus of the doctrine that's often known as common grace. Underlying Ephesians 2, supporting Ephesians 2, and the doctrine of total depravity is the basic theological doctrine of common grace. Now, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 17, deal with some of the distinctions between the Jew and Gentile. And they deal with the advantage of the Jew and the disadvantage of the Gentile. The Gentile is cut off separate, away from the covenants of promise, away from God, uh, just absent from that commonwealth. We noted that these distinctions, and I would say both disadvantages and advantages, are divinely instituted. It was God's pleasure when He called Abram from Ur. Why did God do that? Did Abram deserve it? Who was Abram? He's a pagan. He worships false gods. Yet God singled him out and He called him and He made promises to him and He told him what to do and blessed his obedience, his faith. And then later on we look from Abram as there develops a nation known as Israel. God chose Israel to be a distinct people. He blessed them. He chose them to be distinct by their clothes, by their diet, by their way of worship, where they live, by their marriage. Over and over, there are so many things as we read through the Old Testament that God divinely instituted to keep them as a separate, identifiable people. He gave them His Word. We looked at that. He gave him His oracles, His law and His prophets. They had it. The Hittites didn't. The Jebusites didn't. Israel did. The Philistines didn't. Israel did. God gave them what was then the means of grace. But He deliberately did not give it 
to the rest. God instructed them how to worship. We go into the very detailed way they were to worship. The building of the tabernacle down to the, to, to, to the inches of how it has to be built, how it has to be adorned, the location of the furniture in the tabernacle itself. All of this is instituted by God for Israel. And when the Philistines stole the Ark of the Covenant, they couldn't get it back quick enough, could they? Because it wasn't their possession. But these distinctions, these advantages, were temporary. We've been reading in Hebrews, and I've just marveled at so many of the lessons in Hebrews that we have given in Ephesians. There's this great highway between the two. But for example, when I said it is these were these distinctions were temporary. Uh, this was noticed, I think, in Pastor Tyler's comments, but in Hebrews 8, verse 13, we read about the passing away of the old covenant. It's done away with. In speaking of the new covenant, He, God, makes the first one obsolete. Who made the first covenant obsolete? God. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. We even saw that with the veiling of Moses. Some people think Moses veiled his face because he was so bright. But if you read the Scripture, he veiled his face because the glory is passing away. Hebrews 9. According to this arrangement, Hebrews 9, verse 9, according to this arrangement, what, and you'll get the context here, but what arrangement? This arrangement of the Old Covenant According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot, that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of the Reformation. Not the 16th, 16th century Reformation, but... This new covenant reformation. I think we see something of the obsolete nature of the old covenant expressed in the words of Jesus in John chapter 4 when he's talking to the woman at the well about worship. You find how it's obsolete, how God is making it pass away, has made it pass away at that point, according to the words of Christ. But John says to her, Woman, Believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain where the Samaritans worshipped, nor in Jerusalem where the Jews worshipped, will you worship the Father. The hour is here. This, that's past. It's passing. And it will be complete with the resurrection of Christ. But it's passing away. That's passed away. And it goes on to say, but the hour is coming and is now here. When true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. Well, look at Ephesians chapter 2. You begin with verse 14. And isn't this what is being said? For He Himself, Christ ourself, is our peace, who has made both one, the, the separate, the Jew, the Gentiles, made both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility. 
By abolishing. How did Christ do that? By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. These that I just read about. These washings. These diets. These particular observations. Christ did away with that. That He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace. And might reconcile us both to God. Uh, in one body through the cross, well, I'm, I'm, excuse me, I got off the line there. And he came, yeah, I did. Let me start over, verse 16. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Sorry for the slip there. But I hope you got the, the context and the meat of that verse. Now these temporary distinctions, why did I go into all that? These temporary distinctions and advantages were matters of common grace. Common grace. What is common grace, you say? Well, let me give you this definition from John Murray. Every favor of whatever kind or degree Falling short of salvation, which this undeserving and sin-cursed world enjoys at the hand of God. Every goodness, every kindness, every extension of the tiniest mercy, we can say is an expression of God's common grace. Where does He send His Son to shine? Where does he give rain to fall? Is it only upon the righteous? No. His rain falls on the just and the unjust. And the sun rises in the USA just like it rises in China or North Korea. God gives his blessings in the form of what is defined as common grace. Those things that are short of salvation. Now, in Reformed theology, common grace is considered a, a supplement, a, I don't know if supplement's a good word, but it, it's considered a hand-in-hand doctrine with total depravity. That's why I'm going into all of this. Why is that? Why, do we, why would we say that common grace is, is a partner with the doctrine of total depravity? Or is it partnered to the doctrine of total depravity? What is total depravity? What is that? Does that deal with the lostness and the sinfulness of man? Didn't we read that in Ephesians 2? The first couple of verses there? Of how man is dead in sin. He's morally bankrupt. But when we read that and when we teach on the doctrine of total depravity, we're always, we try to always be careful to say that doesn't mean that every human being is as evil and as wicked as they could be. Why not? What restrains the wickedness of men? Grace. Is it saving grace? No. No. And if it were not 
for this, man is so pervasively depraved that there could be no continuance of human history. There could be no development of culture. There could be, there could be no growth in common virtue at all anywhere in the entire world because all of humanity is under total depravity. What keeps us from going crazy and annihilating each other? Completely, totally. From Cain, killing his brother Abel, we see that wicked heart. What stops us as a, as a, as a race, what stops that from happening across the globe? Grace. God says this far and no further. When Abimelech would have Abram's, Abraham's wife and he took her to be his wife, what did God do? He stopped him. He sent a dream to that man. He said, no, you will not. And he stopped him. Did he save him? Not that we have any record of him saving him. But he sure stopped him. He said, like he says to the sea, here are your boundaries. You go here and you don't go beyond that. Ah, but when that grace is pulled back, what happens? When there is a retreat or a, or a restraining of common grace, what happens? Well, read Romans 1 and you see what happens. It gets darker and darker and more sinful and more depraved and it just goes down. So when we teach about, teach about total depravity, we don't say that it's an absence of social good or it's an absence of morality. Let me give you a passage, a verse from Jesus on that. In Luke chapter 6, verses 32 through 34. See, if you don't follow what I'm saying here as far as the common grace of God and, and how it works, even in giving goodness to all, and there can be what we call moral good. There can be ethics. In this world, there can be laws. But they're not salvific. Well, here in Luke 6, Jesus says, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Then he goes on. For even sinners, the reprobate, the Gentile, the castaway, for even sinners love those who love them, that's nothing big. That's common. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. Have you ever heard somebody say, oh, he's a good man. He'll give you the shirt off his back. But does he love Christ? Now we see an example of, I think, of this common grace. Of course, it eventually will come saving grace in this case. But we see an example of this when we consider the, the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Jesus starts that conversation off with a general truth. Verse 3. Unless one, very general, is born again, he cannot see the kingdom God. And Nicodemus says, 
Well, now how can that be? How can a full-grown man go into his mother's womb and be reborn? And Christ's response in verse 5 is again a general response. He uses one. Unless one is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And then Jesus gets specific. And maybe not, but in my mind's eye, he looks at Nicodemus and he says to him in full-throated gospel message, you must be born again. Why did he tell Nicodemus that? Um, maybe you have a different conclusion, but my conclusion is because Nicodemus needed to be born again. That's why. Because he wasn't seeing, he wasn't hearing, he was, he was not entering. Nicodemus had common grace. Before Jesus said to him, you must be born again, Nicodemus was a man of moral virtue. I dare say probably our morality with them in light of Nicodemus's. Nicodemus was a man of conscience. He had a conscience. He came to Christ. Something's going on. And he asks these questions and Christ tells him what the problem is and the answer to it. And Nicodemus was a man in need of regeneration. He was a man in need of spiritual life. How can I say that? Because you're not saved by your natural birth, but, but you must be born again of the Spirit. We find out, I got, let's move on. We could find a, a similar example in Mark 10 with the rich young ruler. Probably deserves the, the trophy of the year for the nicest you know, young man around. And yet he leaves Jesus because he loves his wealth and his status more than he loves Jesus. And so that's another example of what I speak. Yet there's common grace there. The man did good. All these I've done, all, I've kept your commandments. I've kept those from since I was a boy. I'm a good man. And yet, he had no spiritual life. Well, in the case of Ephesians, the Gentiles, they were alienated. They were strangers from Christ, from the commonwealth of Israel, from the covenants of promise. But it doesn't mean there's a total absence of common grace. It seems that today, according to Romans 11, verses 7 through 12, and I, I grant a difficult passage indeed, but it seems the situation has been reversed. Gentiles' eyes are opened and Israel's eyes are closed. However, God says in Romans to us who are of a Gentile Background. He says to us, remember. Oh, that's what I have in Ephesians. Remember. Remember that you were grafted in Amen. a wild olive tree. Remember. Don't be proud and cocky and puffed up. 
because he can graft in again the natural branch. So observation one. I've got a couple of observations and I hope you see some relation to the Ephesians. If you don't, maybe I can make it for us over with. But a couple of observations. In Ephesians, excuse me, not in Ephesians. Whoop, put that out of your brain for a minute. In, in, long years ago in, in seminary, I had a class on demonology. And it was an interesting class. And I think I walked away with some conclusions and ideas and thoughts on the topic. But one that is spiritual warfare that Paul will mention in Ephesians 6 is real. And those that think not are foolish. But the spiritual warfare, even though it's real, is more subtle in countries that are influenced. Did you get that word? That are influenced by the Christian faith. That is such things as what are called possessions or overt satanic activity are more closely related to frontline work, missionary work, out on the fringes where the gospel hasn't been. That's where you tend to run into those sort of activity and overt wickedness and evil. We don't usually have voodoo around us here, uh, even though it's very possible we do. Uh, we don't have, uh, you know, witches covered around us as far as I know, but we very possibly could. But usually in countries that have been under the influence of the gospel, those things are moved back. And you find those things more on the front edge of where you go with the gospel to preach. Think of uh, Paul and Barnabas and then Paul and Silas as they go out and Acts. What do they confront? When they go out where the gospel hasn't been, that's exactly what they run into. And I, rem- I, can, I remember a, a memorable encounter. I was in Mariupol, which now lies in ashes and heaps of ashes. I was in Mariupol, Ukraine in 1993. And when we arrived... The first, there were some people that met us and they were talking to some people that were with us. But they told them the Satanists had blown up the library. That's the first thing we heard when we arrived in Mariupol. And what they would do is, under communism, you didn't have freedom of access to information. And a lot of towns didn't have books or they had limited books. And so what the Christians would do in their to their churches is they would they would open a library and in that they would put good they put the Bible and they would put some good books if they had access to it because people were hungry to read something because they'd been cut off. And so they would go there and they would read and oh here's the Bible and they would read the Bible and other materials. Well the Satanists have blown up the library. That's the first thing we hear when we get off the bus. And it's night. And then they hustle us through the streets and we go out to the town. There's like a town square where we are and they've thrown down some old tires and on top of the tires they put some plywood and on top of the plywood they put a couple of microphones. And when we got there, there's people everywhere milling around. 
There are people that are drunk. There are people that are sober. There are people, children that are crying. It, we're in the middle of the town square. And we walk into that area and they say, preach. Okay. I remember preaching. And I remember thinking, learning from that, the advantage of parables. When you got children hanging onto your legs and you're trying to go through a translator and bring the gospel down to an understandable level in 10 minutes. How do you do this? In 15 minutes. But when we finished preaching, I think author Devane also preached that evening, I believe. But after we finished preaching, we were approached by some people that said, there's a woman here who is possessed. I'm like, whoa. I looked at author, I said, you're senior. You handle that one, I'm out of here. Observation, uh, in this observation one, as the light of truth, as Christianity fades, wickedness becomes more pronounced, more pervasive, more active. When there is a decline in the pronounced word of God, which can be in an area, and that's just a common grace of God that is there. Now, it can result and will result in saving grace. Don't misunderstand me. But the fact that an area has the gospel preached, go back to the seed, the sower, that's just God's goodness in sending forth his ministers to preach his word and to establish churches where we can gather and worship. But where there is a decline in the pronounced word of God, it is a sign of divine judgment. And it invariably, invariably will lead to a reduction of common grace because the restraints come back. As the light goes down, the restraints come back. What did Jesus say that, that uh, the world preferred darkness to light because their deeds were evil? And they won't come to the light because they hate the light. I've always thought of an old log out in the woods every time I read that passage. You go out and you tore a rock or something, you flip it over, and there's all kind of critters under there, and what they want to do is get back to dark and back to safety. They want to get out of the light. But when the light comes, it shines in darkness, and changes are made. Spiritual changes, yes. But other changes. Observation two, we noted last week that believers want to bring their children up under the word of God. And that they themselves want to be under the word and in his church. And that believers desire the spread of the gospel, the free offer that we studied somewhat this morning. And why do we do that? Because we understand that the gospel is God's ordained means of grace to call sinners from darkness to light. We understand that it's by and through the gospel that people are changed and this, this, this sinfulness that causes us to sit as it were at the city gates 
and, 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 and have broken spirits because we look at the world and we see darkness and we see evil and wickedness and we wonder how many, Damien, 65 million? How many children can be aboard? Was it 65 million? About that in the past census row versus way. So, okay. Between 16 and 65 million. And 1,500 saved. 1,500 saved. And we wonder. And we, and we listen to what's going on around us and we go, how depraved is that? And he just knew the lights pulling back. And so we want to see it go out. We want to see them changed. We'd love to see our elected officials saved. So that they'll make what we would think are rational, sane decisions, but really they're Christian based, faith based decisions. And we desire the spread of the gospel. Because by and through the gospel, sinners are brought from darkness to light. Romans 1.16 For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. But you know, there are places where the word of God isn't known and isn't being proclaimed openly. And you don't have to go to a dark jungle to find that place. And many, and I might say most, advanced, what's called advanced Western nations, the gospel has been under assault for quite some time. And the darkness grows deeper, including our own country. You think about Jonathan Edwards and you think about preaching, you think about thousands of people there and how they would walk for miles and how God used revival and, and, and changed the countryside. And you go, oh my goodness, is it, was that real? Was that truly real? And the answer is yes, it was. Or how in London they had over a hundred laws that were punishable by death, even for a child stealing a piece of bread to eat because he's hungry until the time of the great revival. And they closed gin houses and houses of prostitution, opened orphans, built, of course, churches, sent out the word. It just permeated. The light shined and darkness retreated. So I don't have to go to some jungle. I can go to most countries. In fact, I can go into my neighborhood. I remember being shot years ago when I was doing some student teaching and realizing some of the students in my classroom did not even know they, they, yeah, they'd heard the word Bible, but they knew nothing about the Bible. They knew nothing about Christ. I don't have to go. I mean, it's fine if God sends me, but I don't have to go to, to a jungle somewhere. We've got it right out the windows and doors. You'd be surprised. I mean, people don't have an inkling. Maybe you wouldn't be. But they don't have an inkling of an idea what Christian faith is. That's dark. And we wonder, why is there a rising crime rate? Why is there this? Why is there that? And you go, because there has been a retreating of the gospel of Jesus Christ, even to the point that we have churches that don't even know how to preach the gospel. Preachers that don't know the gospel. Okay. 
We come back to Ephesians. So we see that we see a work of common grace here. But there's something much greater than that. And I've got about nine minutes I'm going to do this in. Ha ha. <laughs> we read that access to God is available. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4 for just a moment. I want to read a passage that I've tried to preach on through the years more than once. The last time I think was 2019 here in BC. And uh, I'll just try to give you the cliff notes. But Hebrews 4, verse 14. And this is what Ephesians 2 is telling us when we get down to those, those, in, those center verses. Where we have access to God. This is what saving grace is. Christ has leveled the field. He's the one that brings us near. Verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, we have made much because the passage makes much of the sovereignty of God. Now, what is sovereignty? What is sovereign? You know, there are some people that use that adjective in their title, the sovereign whatever of Sovereign king or sovereign queen or whatever country or whatever it may be. But there's only one sovereign, and that's God. A.W. Pink says that divine sovereignty means that God is God in fact, as well as in name. That He is on the throne of the universe, directing all things, working all things, after the counsel of His own will. Haven't we read that in Ephesians 1? Isn't that what we read? That God is working all things, verse 11, after the counsel of His own will. And it's moving towards the goal. That's sovereignty. And in Hebrews 4, we find the sovereignty of God expressed in the fact that where is, where is it that we're to come? To the throne of grace. The throne. What is the throne? It's the seat, the center, the location, if you would, of the sovereign. Draw near to the, to the throne, to the sovereign God. In Isaiah 6, we have a beautiful, I'll not read it for time, but in Isaiah 6, oh, I want to read it. We have a beautiful picture of the, of, the, of the enthroned Lord and how His glory fills the temple and how worshipers can't even worship because in, in the some sense of the word, because the glory of God is so prevalent, so pronounced. Even the doorpost, even, even the door jams moved, inanimate objects move at the presence of the living, holy God. And John tells us in chapter 12, verse 41, that Isaiah's vision is a vision of the enthroned Christ. It's Christ, he says, that Isaiah is talking about. And we're told to draw near His throne, knowing that He is sovereign. What does that mean? What is my hope and salvation for my unsaved children? Is it in them? 
Have they been taught? Have they been exposed to common grace? Have they known the Scripture? Have they been taught the Scripture? Absolutely. What's my hope in preaching to a congregation of people? Not knowing if it was like that night in Mariupol, not knowing who's there. Young and old. What's, what, what's my hope in that? That I have the power, innate power or psychology to convince them to, to confess Christ? No. No, we're not of those that would disuse or misuse the gospel, Paul would say. That's not who we are. No, my hope is in a sovereign God that's greater than man and greater than sin. What is my encouragement in prayer? Why do I bow my knees and raise my voice and my eyes to heaven to pray? Because God is greater. He's sovereign. He does His counsel. And no one can stop him. That's why I go to God in prayer. He's great. I'm not. He's sovereign. I'm not. What is my hope for the future? What under heaven can bring me forth should I die and be laid in the grave save the sovereign power and authority of Jesus Christ my Lord? Yes, we confess God is sovereign. And that's a basic point people need to get. But you know, as necessary as the sovereignty of God is, it's not enough. If that's all I know about God, it's not enough. I'm also told in Ephesians 4 that He is compassionate. Verse number 15 emphasizes the compassion that, that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. God is sovereign. He's great. He has all power. But maybe He's mean. Maybe He doesn't care. Oh, no. No. Come to the throne, to this compassionate high priest who has lived a life in the flesh just like you're living, and knows the weaknesses and trials just like you know them. And was tempted in every point just like I'm tempted. And yet without sin. That's the high priest. He's compassionate. And we read through the Gospels over and over again. This is Cliff Notes. I won't do it. But you go through the Gospel over and over. Here's the compassion of Christ. As He sees the multitude. But that is not enough. So what if God is sovereign? He is. And so what if He is compassionate? And He is. But yet, that is not still enough. I need access. Because if I can't draw near to Him, that just simply means that there is a sovereign, compassionate being I'm cut off from. And that's Ephesians 2, by the way. They were cut off. Oh, but that's been leveled. And that's been leveled through Jesus Christ. We have in verse 14, we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens. He's there. 
Jesus, the Son of God. And we have it again in verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. I have access. But only through Christ. But that's still not enough. And these are my closing words to you. So I have a sovereign God who's compassionate, who's accessible through Christ. How do you draw into the presence of a sovereign? Do you just walk in to see the king or walk in to see the president? You must have an invitation. Free offer. We must have an invitation. Oh, and we have an invitation. To the unconverted, they are summoned, they are called, they are invited to repent, to confess, to follow, and know God and be satisfied. Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Why would an unbeliever never come to Christ or confess Christ, but spend their life spinning their wheels and reach no happiness, no satisfaction, no blessedness, no fullness when God Himself has said, Come. Come to me. And then, of course, Matthew 11. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But also, as was noted this morning, the gospel is not just for unbelievers. The invitation is not just for the unbeliever, it's for us, it's for the believer. And I'm bid come. And I'm bid welcome to come into the presence of God. And I come into the presence of God in corporate worship. Where we are part of the Lord's covenant community. His local church. Where hopefully, faithfully we engage in the public means of grace. That we have access to. That brings us into the very sacred presence of our Lord Himself. And also I'm told to come. He's compassionate. And there I may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. How many people do the opposite? Oh, I crushed or whatever it may be and the next thing you know, you don't see them. They're but a shadow in the assembly. You go, what happened? What's, what's going on here? They're doing the very opposite of what Christ invites them to do. And lastly, come. Come to the Lord. In repentance and faith, come to the Lord in your prayers and our corporate worship in the means of grace. Come because grace is greater than my sins. And every impediment under heaven and in earth and under the earth has been annulled through Jesus Christ the Lord. There is no wall, there is no barrier. There is nothing to separate us as believers from the living God. Come. 
Oh, do not despise Christ. To not listen to Christ and follow His command is to say that Christ is not worthy of your worship, of your faith. That's all you do. That's all I would do. As I am saying into the face of God Himself, you have opened the door. You have invited me. You are sovereign. You are merciful. You are acceptable. Uh, that, that I can go into your presence. Accessible, excuse me. And now I am invited. And no, God, I will not do that. Why not? Because Christ, I, He's not worthy. So if you ever read Ephesians 2, 1, and you go, that wasn't me. I was always raised in the church. Think again. Think again. Until you have faith in Jesus Christ, that is my and your state. I'm at war with God. And I do not count Christ worthy. Worthy to erase my sins and forgive me of all my sins. That's why it's such an affront. Oh my. That's why it's such an affront. Do not be that way. Do not do that. Come. Sovereign. Compassionate. Accessible. And you are invited. Let's pray together. Oh Lord our God, why would you look down from heaven upon us and have mercy and have grace? We confess there is not a thing in us that is worthy. We confess, Lord, that we have sinned against you. We have broken your commandments, all of them. We confess that we've been filled with self-righteousness. We confess, Lord, that of our own, we are lost and undone. And we, we believe, we receive in faith our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And may that name, may that person, may that reality be with us all the days of our life. And conduct us from this world into the next. I pray in the blessed holy name of Jesus our Savior. Amen. Amen. At this time, if you would, if you are able, please stand and join uh, me in singing hymn number 173. O Thou in Whose Presence. Thank you.